0: We're going to be in John 4. Originally, we are going to be in John 4, uh, 1 to 26, but I shortened it. Um, And you don't realize it, but you should be thankful about that. Because we would be here for a long time. Um, (laughs) We're going to be in John 4, 1 to 15. So John 4, 1 to 15. Have you guys ever heard the line... Uh, maybe you've said it. If I could, if I wanted to, I could stop. Ever heard that line? Ever someone ever tell you, like, if I wanted to, I could just stop? Right? And then if you ask them to actually stop, they won't do it. But they could if they wanted to. Right? This, this is an idea that's often associated with whether it's light or heavy, like addiction. Right? Like, oh, I don't, I don't have to have that chocolate bar. But if you don't have that chocolate bar. Or oh, no, perfect example is coffee. Right? Look at you. Yes, yes. There's the idol. No, I don't think it is. But the idea being that we, when we get addicted to something, right, when we desire something, this craving, we have to go back to it again and again. This is a, a feeling of pleasure that's often associated with dopamine, something in our brains. And maybe we've talked about this before, but this feeling of pleasure is actually how a healthy brain would identify and reinforce good behaviors in your life. Right? Things like eating and socializing. Our brains are actually wired to increase the odds that we would repeat pleasurable activities. And this is usually a good thing for us, that you get a burst of dopamine that signals that something important is happening and needs to be remembered. And so you give into that, that craving, that desire, But eventually, you have to come back to it. Eventually, that feeling goes away, you get hungry, and you have to go and eat some more. And again, this is a good and natural thing. We we need food. We need to be with one another. Our bodies are made in such a way to keep going back to these things, because having them once or twice will never be enough for us. We will always need more. But, As we come to John 4, Jesus questions that idea. He says, what if you don't actually need more? What if I could give you something that would last a lifetime? What if I could give you a a special brand of water, one so refined, so pure, that you would never thirst again after drinking this once? And it sounds silly, and... The woman who we will meet in this narrative will think the exact same thing. But I think if we thought about this differently, in the way maybe Jesus intended, that we would see the point he's getting to, and that we will see. That what if, in all of us, there's a hole in our hearts? What if it's all of us, some of us, are, are dealing with things that we try to fill up in our life? What if you feel unseen? And so you keep investing in relationships, hoping that someone will see you, and it's never enough. You find people, but they've not seen you. What if you keep going back to the well of safety? Everything in your life is about being secure, making sure your finances are good, making sure your emotions are in check, making sure you're physically safe, but it's never enough. You always need more. Jesus is going to come to us in these first 15 verses and claim that he has a solution to that. That he can offer us something to satisfy not just our need for water, but our deepest needs in ways much greater than our own efforts can create or accomplish. This is what Jesus claims in John 4 and what he offers us today. That in Jesus, we are confronted with life's limitations for satisfaction and we are also offered eternal satisfaction through Him. And so the encouragement will be to receive God's gift of living water. So we're going to read John 4, verses 1 to 15. This is the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. That I would decrease, that Christ, you would increase vastly. That you would grow so very large in our hearts and minds. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So even as we leave chapter 3 in the Gospel of John, we we find Jesus in one of the beginning sections of this Gospel. This is in the section that contains his ministry in Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, and uh, uh, Samaria, and to the Gentiles. In this section, we have two big encounters. He already worked through the first, his time with Nicodemus chapter 4 begins the second of these big encounters as Jesus engages with the Samaritan woman. This meeting will be interesting in in many ways. In a moment where the Samaritan woman would traditionally show hospitality to a stranger who's coming to her town in need of water, Jesus will actually play some reversal. He will actually be the one to show the woman that he has the needed gift for her. What we're going to see is that Jesus is going to confront Her limitations. He's going to confront our limitations for satisfaction in this life. He will use imagery around water that is meant to point to something much deeper, a need much greater in all of us. The need for eternal satisfaction. He'll also present an offer, a gift from God through Christ that we can receive living water through him. And so let's think about this first, looking at verses 1 to 7, a divine check-in. So verses 1 to 7, a divine check-in. Word had gotten to Jesus that the Pharisees, Jewish leaders, had discovered he was becoming a greater influence in the area. The followers were coming up, people were being baptized, and so he'd even moved past the fame and notoriety of John the Baptist, who had come before him. Jesus was becoming a very big deal in the area. And so, perhaps to avoid confrontation with Jewish leadership, at this point, Jesus leaves the head towards Galilee, which would have been the north part of Israel. And with that, we come to an intriguing few verses, starting at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so it was Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, and in verse 7 we learn a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said, give me a drink. Verse 5, I think, places the importance of this area for us as Jacob's field as mentioned. Jacob would have been a patriarch, one of the early fathers of Israel. And so this actually connects the place within the history of God and his people. This setting is an encounter not just with first century Samaritan people, but this is ground that God has been working in and on for hundreds of years. For both the Jews and the Samaritans, this area was defined by so much history and faith. But this was not necessarily friendly territory for the Jew. You might know King Omri named the new capital of the northern kingdom, Isra- uh, Samaria. You can see this in 1 Kings chapter 16. After the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722 BC, they would have removed all, deported all the Israelites, most of them, and settled the land with foreigners. And so these would intermarry with the surviving Israelites, and these people would adhere to some of the Israelite religion, believing in Yahweh, but they would admit some things in that too. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17 and 18. After the exile, so Israelites are taken away, but then they come back eventually. The Jews return to their homeland. The remains of the southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem they would have looked differently at the northern side. So these southern Jews would have looked at the northern Israelites and would have seen them as mixed. They would have viewed them as not their own. They would have viewed the Samaritans as children of political rebels and racial half-breeds, whose religion was tainted by unacceptable things. And so by the first century, you had the Samaritans who had become their own distinct people in many ways, who had taken on their own religious heritage, believing in the Pentateuch, but not believing in the prophets of the Old Testament. And this would have caused a lot of strife and animosity from the southern Israelites. This historical context shapes the way people have understood Jesus' journey to Samaria. And so when you get to verse 4 and you read Jesus had to pass through Samaria, many commentators insist that this is odd. That many Jewish travelers would have taken a longer route. They would have gone around Samaria to Galilee, which lay on the other side. And this is because their dislike for Samaritans was just that big of a deal. So when we read this language, Jesus had to, it brings this idea of divine appointment. That it wasn't the route... That made most sense. uh, That it was the route that made most sense. But more than that, it was the route Jesus had to go because of this woman. But there is some conflict here. Josephus, a historian, a contemporary of these times, he would have said yes. There was a lot of beef between Jews and Samaritans. But also, the Jews would have taken the shortest route to Galilee. (laughs) They probably still went through Samaria because it was much shorter than going around. I say this just because I think we should be careful about how we read things into the text. But I also believe there can be a case of both and. That in the sovereignty of God, Jesus did have to meet this woman who happened to be coming alone at noontime during the day, which would have been a very strange thing, and that Jesus had to go through Samaria because it was the route that made most sense. He pulled it up in Apple Maps and said, go through Samaria. We should see that God's sovereignty often works itself out in the normalcy of our life. Meaning God's plans are unfolding even as we do things we want to do and the things we need to do each and every day. It's not always a sign in the sky that directs us. It is perhaps you going to work that God is directing you to somebody you need to meet. It is important that we see that this word had has important connotations of the work of God and it's plan of saving the world. There are things God had to do and needs to do, but we should see how those things work out in our life, in just the day-to-day. That God is sovereign in the normal aspects of what we do every single day. That our lives are not simply uh, wound clocks, set off by codes, going off at predetermined times, but it isn't also a series of random occurrences and opportunities. No, God has made promises. He has made decrees and plans Plans that we have seen are happening and will happen. And we are also at the same time living lives of real weight on the choices we make. That those lives happen within God's real power to do as he pleases. God may very well be putting people like the Samaritan woman in the path that we are walking. I do wonder how many of us pray that God would make that clear to us. As we live our lives day to day, that we are trying to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and how God is placing people in our life or opportunities in our life to preach the gospel, to care for somebody in need. We, like Jesus, are given these opportunities to present living water, what Jesus will offer her. But I also hope when we read this text, we see a very real Jesus, We read in verse 6 that Jesus is weary. This is why he stops. He's weary from his journey, and he's thirsty. And I think that's amazing, that Jesus, the Son of God, was tired and thirsty. This is the wonder of Jesus. This is something called uh, the hypostatic union. That's your word of the day. That Jesus is both truly man and truly God. This is something the church has believed for hundreds, hundreds, thousands of years. Let me, I'm going to read to you something our spiritual uh, forefathers wrote in 451. This is called the, the Chalcedonian definition of Jesus. So I'm going to read this to you so you can hear what Christians like you have believed about Jesus for a very long time. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers... We all, with one accord, teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet, as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation. Of the, Virgin, uh, the Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person, not as parted or separated in two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Father's has handed down to us. Now, that's a mouthful. That's a lot to chew on. But I think it's important for us to realize that this is what we believe. As confusing and as it doesn't make sense conceptually to us that Jesus is both God and man in the most complete of ways. And the wonder of that, I think is that this God, Jesus was willing to take on flesh, not losing his godness. He took on weak bone and flesh. So this fatigue that Jesus experiences, it doesn't just fit into the timing and place of this narrative, but it expresses the very essence of what he came to do. That the mission of Jesus is not just about what he says, but what he endured for us. That Jesus is sympathetic to us, our struggles, because he took on our brokenness. The God of the universe walked as a true human being in ways that I don't think we can really ever grasp. This Jesus, in his thirst, he says to the woman, give me a drink. This creates a divinely appointed conversation with the intrigued yet cautious woman. One who asks, do you know who my father is? And so let's look at verses 7 to 12. Jesus' request in verse 7 shouldn't be seen as a demand, but a way to invite the hospitality of a supposed stranger to help him. Normally in a situation like this, Jesus' disciples would be want to go grab him water. It would be normal practice for students of a teacher in the ancient world. But as the text tells us, they went to go grab food in the city. And so it was just Jesus and this woman, which again is a strange thing. We're told it's the sixth hour, meaning around noon, and that's the hottest time of the day. Generally, women would come in groups to get water from the well, and usually they would either go early in the morning or later in the day to avoid the heat. So for reasons that are not yet told to us, she is alone. Jesus' statement, give me a drink, begins a conversation, but it also surprises the woman. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to them, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And we're told, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Her her surprise is based on the fact that a man was speaking like this to a Samaritan woman, considered in Jesus' tradition, Jewish tradition, to be the lowest of the low. According to one Jewish saying... The daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants of the cradle. You know what that? Don't know what that means? It basically means they are in perpetual ceremonial uncleanness. They're icky. That's what it basically means. This is the history of strife that had been created between Jews and Samaritans. These two groups had come to despise each other in many ways, and for the Jew to be around a Samaritan woman would be to become unclean. And yet here is Jesus, ignoring the norm, ignoring the status quo, even risking uncleanness by asking this woman for water. And this is what you see Jesus do time and time again, church. That he cuts through our man-made barriers, things that we have put in place due to our pride, our sin, our brokenness, Things that separate us from one another. Jesus, he steps in, he cuts through the hostility. And he shows us a better way. That 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 word dealing can also mean associate. That Jesus is willing to associate with any and all because of who he is. This was a woman the Jews, as a people, had decided they could not be around. But in the identity of Jesus, we find someone who can deal with with the sin between Jew and Samaritan. And even more, we have found someone in Christ who can deal with the issues between God and the world. Jesus, in his own actions, shows us the way we ought to be. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who is holy and imperfect, associated with sinners, who by definition are unholy and imperfect, that him being that way should throw out of the window any idea that people, regardless of their background, are less than. Not worthy of our time, not worthy of our effort. Jesus' actions should cut through the ignorance of thinking any human is not worth the hearing of the gospel. Not worth the power of transformation that Jesus brings to all. But I hope you also recognize the range of Jesus' conversation. Jesus had just spoken with Nicodemus, the rich, influential, religious Jew. Now he speaks with this woman, nameless, alone, for reasons that you might assume are ungodly, and a Samaritan. The contrast between Nicodemus and this woman are vast and large, but the need is still the same for both of them. What has Jesus felt to Nicodemus? You must be born again. What will you tell this woman? If you knew who I was, you would have asked me for the gift of God. You would have received living water. They both need the same thing. They need Jesus. Jesus went to both the religious leader and the Samaritan woman. I think this poses a question for us. Are all actually welcome to hear and see Jesus as a part of our church? Because I think we can be a little bit Weird about these things. Sometimes we'll talk about not wanting to maybe be this kind of church, not wanting these kinds of people, or only wanting these kinds of people in our church. But as we look at Jesus's range of conversation, that he was willing to talk to the high and elect, to talk to the low, the discarded. I think it's an example to us that the power of the gospel does not discriminate. But if the gospel is the power for salvation. If it is a message to be proclaimed to everyone, we should actually do that. But we should, in our hearts, desire for all to hear, accept, and walk as disciples of Jesus. But this is what we would do. That we would care more about who God has put in front of us as a church than who we want to be put in front of us as people. That we would care more about who is in our neighborhood and let God be sovereign about who he has put in front of us, than us desiring to look a certain way or be attractive, be attractive to certain kinds of people. Jesus answers the woman in verse 10, saying, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that it was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. As you may have already learned through our time in the Gospel of John, Jesus' words, his responses, his answers are often layered with spiritual meaning. And that doesn't change at all here in the conversation with the woman at the well. Already, Jesus is changing the flow of conversation, the direction of this meeting, from an opportunity for the woman to care for Jesus to Jesus bringing ultimate care to her. His response is interesting in that he doesn't really answer the woman's question the way you think he should. But actually challenges her understanding of who he is and what's in front of her. It is not that Jesus doesn't know who he is, a Jew talking to a Samaritan. It is actually that the woman doesn't know who Jesus is. And so the she therefore is the one acting. Strange and even wrong in some ways. Yes, Jesus is Jewish. His appearance is of one thirsty and needing a drink. But the truth is that more than that, he is the unique son of God. The very expression of the love of God. But she is blind to his identity. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God. That word gift, it actually occurs 11 times in the New Testament. It always points to something graciously offered of God and four times it's referenced to the Holy Spirit. Now, if we put our context clues together, we would have just seen a, a, a big section of uh, referring to the work of the Spirit. We must be born again. This only happens by the Spirit. Nicodemus has told this. And so it is likely that the gift that Jesus is talking to that includes the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the gift of God is salvation, eternal life, In this is revealed Shown in the gift of the Spirit given by the Father through the Son. The gift is given more explicit definition as you continue in verse 10. We're told Jesus would give her living water. Well, again, this is symbolic and there are some different interpretations here. We see that this is rooted in the Old Testament as we've seen John already do again and again. A clear example would be Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where the Lord brings a complaint against Israel who has sinned against him. He writes, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Significant here is that that God is described as the fountain or spring of living water. Israel had access to living water in God, but their sin had them building cisterns, like, like tanks, with holes at the bottom. And so they fill them up, but as quickly as they fill them, they empty. But God offers hope. Look with me at Ezekiel chapter 47. We're going to read through Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 to 12. Ezekiel writes, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man man measured a thousand cubits, and that led me through the water, and it was ankle-deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was knee-deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was waist-deep, verse 5. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass. For the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and into the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engadi and Elglam, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will be, they will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves For healing. This imagery is meant to powerfully express what is coming out of the sanctuary by God. Fresh, living water that brings life to everything. That God will cause water to flow out of the sanctuary in the New Jerusalem to bring life to the dried up land, even beyond Judah's borders. This prophecy does something very important and even fitting in our text. It portrays the blessing of God that floods from Jerusalem into the surrounding countries, even the region of Samaria. But this living water isn't just for Israel. It's not just for Jerusalem. It's for the world. Jesus is making a clear reference to this powerful promise of God. This gift of God, these living waters, speak of God and his grace. Knowledge of God, life, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. As you've seen in places like Ezekiel 36, in Isaiah chapter 1, water promises cleansing. These are all themes that are picked up by John. He's picking them up, he's putting them in our face. Because he wants us to see that water, or living water in this gospel, this is a satisfying gift of eternal life that is mediated by the Spirit that only Jesus, the Savior of the world, can give us. What I hope we see is that the gift can only be given through Christ. That he himself is what we most desperately need. And yet, Just like the Samaritan woman, we can miss it. I would even encourage us, if if we're not a Christian and we're looking at this text, the encouragement, I think, for us is to seriously look at Christ, to consider the weight of his words, because in passing Jesus, you are passing on true hope, true life, and waters that are bursting with life for us to experience. But I think in reading this, we can also, as believers, miss the gift that we have in Jesus. I think we can often think of gifts so materially, right? Christmas is coming, and if someone said, my gift to you is I love you, you'd probably go, that's nice, but where's my stuff? We can miss the eternal weight of the gift of God. Because we're struggling with real things. Our health is actually pretty bad. Our finances are in disrepair. We actually do need a job. People I love are suffering. And so we need things, we we want things. And understand what Jesus speaking here in part can bring some of these things to pass, but what he's ultimately giving us is something greater than our circumstances. Eternal life, its gifts and benefits will be fully realized, not now, But that doesn't mean we don't get to enjoy part the gift of Christ today. This woman is in the presence of the unique Son of God, who has brought a gift from heaven, eternal life, living water, and she doesn't even know it. Look at her response in verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, understanding the spiritual meaning of Jesus' words, the woman, not understanding it, the woman asks a pretty natural question. There's some logistical issues to what you're saying, Jesus. You don't even got a bucket, dude. And do you know who my father is? Do you know Jacob? I mean, even Jacob found it necessary to dig a well and to provide this water to to me, our family, to the animals, and he had to dig real deep for that. If Jesus, if you're offering fresh water without using any energy to dig or any normal means, how, like, what, what are you actually saying? Are you saying you are greater than Jacob, or are you just some con artist, the woman hears Jesus, but is in disbelief as she looks at a man without even the basic needs to do what he says he can do. Mm-hmm. And her comments reveals something about what she knows also. She, she's kind of pushing this, this idea of Jacob out, because though the Samaritans didn't believe in the prophets, there are still promises of someone to come and depend it to. In the first five books of the Bible, and even in those first five books, they point to a Savior. So she's not just denying Jesus, but, but she's looking at the Torah, she's looking at the first five books, and she's saying, well, there's only one person who could fit the description of what you're talking about, who could, without nothing to draw with, give Israel living water. We see this in Exodus 17, 1-7, and even in Numbers 22-13, where water gushed out for the community of Israel and all their livestock trade. The Samaritan woman in bringing up Jacob is implicitly asking, even while not really believing Jesus, if Jesus is like the prophet Moses. Because the coming prophet would be great like Jacob. Therefore, it's worth pushing Jesus a little bit. That if Jacob drank from this well, as well as his sons and livestock, how is it you, stranger, can find this well inadequate, and it's water? Not satisfactory. And the answer that John wants you to have, that he wants to be clear, is that Jesus does know exactly who her father is. And he's greater. And what he offers is infinitely greater than Jacob. And Jesus will answer her, her question or her disbelief by presenting the problem with the supposed provision of Jacob. Look at verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. It's kind of like one of those duh moments. Mm-hmm. Jesus points out something plainly obvious. If you drink water, eventually, you should drink water again because you'll be thirsty. Have you ever seen those uh, Snickers commercials <coughs> where someone's like totally out of pocket and they're like, hey, Sue, you should eat a Snickers. You're hungry. <laughs> right? Like you're hangry. So eat a Snickers. Get over yourself.
1: <laughs>
0: right hangry people some of you have that disease um, are, need to eat food so they're no longer hangry and a menace to society <laughs> but the problem is if you give someone a Snickers and they're hangry they'll eventually be what? hangry again, hangry again. Hangry again. I know it's so unfortunate
1: mm-hmm.
0: right the problem with hangry people is that they'll just be hangry again all over again mm-hmm. this is a simple and obvious point that is meant to, to actually point to something deeper in humanity. that all of us, in some way, are looking to Jacob's well to satisfy something that it wasn't built for, that its water can only give us temporary satisfaction. Worse, a lot of us are like Israel in the Old Testament, right That reference in Jeremiah. A lot of us are like them building sisters, these, these jars with holes at the bottom.) <coughs> And so we fill it only to see it coming out from the bottom. We fill it with all this stuff only for it to be empty again. I think the question Jesus poses for all of us, one he's confronting us with, is what well, what cistern have you built? What well are you going to for temporary satisfaction in your life? Is it comfort? Is it relationship? Is it career? Is it money? Where are you looking for satisfaction in your life? That if you can just fill your life up with people, social stability, that'll be enough. Until you lose people, until those people hurt you, or until they simply aren't enough for what you need. You move up the ladder of success until you realize what you hope to find at the top actually requires you to go higher. (laughs) Or you'd be perfectly satisfied if you just had all these things. Financial stability except it never comes to you. Or it does, and you become anxious to find more stability. I think what Jesus is saying is that we're all thirsty. And our personalities, our circumstances, our bents, have us turn to so many different things to fill up our wells, to fill up our cisterns, what is actually an eternal need. Now this thirst is not for natural water, but for God. For eternal life in the presence of God. And the thirst is met not by removing that longing, that desire to fill, but in us, the pouring out of the Spirit. Look at verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Mm-hmm. Understand that this water is from God given only by Jesus. This water is so potent, we're told, and Jesus explains it will plant itself in the person in such a way that it becomes a location where it dwells. You become the well. A well out of which the water will spring into eternal life. The word for springing up or welling up is, is used to describe quick movement. It's an explosion of life that emanates from us by the Holy Spirit. And this illustration is going to show you how drastic the gift of God is on believers. That if this water, the Holy Spirit planted in us, is meant to spring forth. It means, in a sense, there is no such thing as a quiet Christian. That emanating out of us is the work of God. That we are like geysers, bursting with life. This means that our, our lives should emanate Jesus, who has filled us with his spirit. Now look at the woman's response in verse 15. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Maybe she's still skeptical, but but now she's intrigued and interested. She desires and asks Jesus for this greater gift of living water. I think in her question, her, her, her pursuing Jesus in this moment is, for us, a statement. That some of us are asking this question to the wrong person or wrong thing. Like the Samaritan woman, we should go to Jesus and ask for this living water. That as a church, we should point people to Jesus who provides this living water. That we cannot force someone to drink the water, but we can bring them to the brook. We can bring them to the river where streams of living water are. We can show it to them and call them to taste and see that Jesus is good. That we know who Jesus is and what he offers as he proclaims his greatness. That Jesus is creator because he provides living water. And Jacob could not. Jacob could not do this. Jacob could provide for his family. Jacob could provide for his animals. He could provide for generations but he could not provide for the world. Jesus brings provision for all. Through his life and his death on the cross, his resurrection, we can access streams of abundance of living water. And the call is to accept God's offer, this good and gracious gift. That like the woman, we should go to Christ and say, give me this water. To experience a welling up, in our own lives, of the Spirit's work, Family, the blessing we read about in Ezekiel is not just found in the Old Testament. John authors this book, but he also authors the book of Revelation. And we've been going there a little bit over the weeks, and so it's natural that we've seen allusions to his later work in Revelation here in the Gospel of John. But if you go to Revelation chapter 7, we see that John declares something very important. Revelation 7, 16 and 17, that they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will give them, he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes as you move through the book of Revelation, you get to Revelation 21, verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The payment of eternal life was paid when Jesus took his final breath on the cross and he said, it is Finished. All are called to now come to the brook and accept the gift of God. Living water that brings eternal satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its truths. God, we pray that as we uh, read this encounter and even continue uh, uh, next week to see the encounter of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, That we would see the, the gift that he offers, eternal life. That living water can be ours. Living water that when we drink and taste and see that it's good, we will never thirst for again. That we can experience satisfaction for eternity in and through Jesus. Would you help us to walk in that today? To experience in part today what we will know fully tomorrow. Help us to know, Lord, deeply that we don't have to fill up our own jars of holes, that we don't have to go to the well of Jacob for provision. We can go to you, Jesus. We can seek you, and you will give us living water. Help us to come to you and experience eternal life in all of its glory. It's in your name we pray.